This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And joining me today is a very special guest, uh, mostly because we're still trying to figure out if we are actually related and if we might be uh, the next inheritance to the uh, the New England Patriots uh, football team. But in all seriousness, uh, my guest today is Dr. Daniel Kraft. He is the medicine chair for uh, Singularity University, as well as the founder of Exponential Medicine, Dr. Kraft. Welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here, cousin. Craft Spite. <laughs> and um, I, I have met Robert Kraft. I used to live in Boston, but as far as I can tell, wasn't related. Never got a ticket to the uh, any Patriots games, but I was served papers uh, because the son of Robert Kraft is a Daniel Kraft. And while I lived on Beacon Hill, I was served papers to be sued, and thankfully it was not me, so I passed them along to the other. <laughs> they couldn't give you a ticket for that? I mean, come on. It's okay. Uh, well, with that, um, before we get into, well, really the main reason I brought you on today is, you know, obviously I just read off a few of your credentials. We're going to get to your background in a second, but I haven't really done an episode that's solely COVID coronavirus related. We're talking about where we're at currently, uh, just so that my audience knows we're recording this on Monday, April 27th. So a lot could change. Uh, it seems like a lot changes uh, <laughs> every hour uh, of late. So before we get into everything having to do with COVID and where we're at and some of the new precautions maybe that we're facing. I'd love to get your full background and uh, what brought you to where you're at today. So I'm sort of a traditionally trained, you know, physician scientist, uh, grew up on the East Coast, went to Brown, came to medical school at Stanford, did my training at Mass General Hospital, then in, in internal medicine and pediatrics, came back to Stanford fellowships in hematology, oncology, mostly cancer stuff, stem cells in the lab, got involved in medical devices, digital health. Um, I did a startup when I was a resident at Mass General, the very first online medical bookstore. So I got a little entrepreneurial there that I sold at the height of the bubble and then saw on my stock <laughs> crash in, in the, the, the burst, bubble burst. Um, um, for the last 10 years, I've headed up the medical side of something called Singularity University uh, at su.org, which is a um, kind of a think tank slash educational platform to bring today's leaders and future leaders together to understand where fast moving exponential technologies are moving from AI, big data, 3D printing, nanotech, blockchains, as that infects your um, investment thesis, if you're an investor or if you're trying to reinvent an in industry, um, create the next Uber, et cetera. Uh, I've also started a program called Exponential Medicine at exponentialmedicine.com, which is basically a, a, an annual conference where we bring folks together from patients, doctors, biotech, investors, Etc. To look at what is the future of healthcare? How do we reimagine it through the lens of uh, a lot of these emerging technologies? And um, in the last month or so, as COVID has exploded, I've been involved in um, helping build an app for the WHO. I'm leading up the X Prizes Pandemic Alliance Task Force, and so I kind of live at the intersection of healthcare technology and um, help think about what we need today and where we're heading, and um, and also you know what's happening in the startup world and I. 
I'm not a full-on venture capitalist, but I did a Kauffman Fellowship. I advised several startups to large companies. I'm a venture partner and can sort of think a little bit about the investments, investment thesis side of things as well. Um, and I'm a craft. And you're a craft. Actually, I, I, I was going to say my, my wife uh, got her RN at uh, Mass General. So that, yeah. yeah, so there's, there's, you know what, there's so many connections that we're getting here, but, uh, <laughs> but with that, let, let's, let's dig right in because I know you're very busy. Uh, I know you don't have too much time. So where are we currently at right now? You know, I mean, I think everybody listening probably has CNN or Fox or one, one of the news stations on uh, all the time. So, you know, from your perspective, where are we currently at? Have we seen the yield curve flatten? You know, I'm just trying, I'm trying not to say too many of the buzzwords, but uh, you know, the floor is yours. Well, I think we're sort of at, we're now at the middle of the beginning. I mean, we're now, what, six weeks into sort of our, at least in California, our sort of lockdown. And arguably here in California, we've done much better than other states. Uh, things uh, got kind of locked down and sheltered in place a bit earlier while there were very few deaths or cases, at least that we knew about. Uh, arguably, the United States has had a very disappointing response, particularly in our ability to do testing. And so we're the number one country in terms of um, uh, slowness to get tests to folks and our ability to sort of smartly respond. Uh, I think uh, you mentioned different news channels. Uh, I might disappoint some of your viewers, but I think listening to certain networks uh, uh, might be dangerous to your health, um, depending on how this was framed early as a bit of a, uh, as a um, uh, not real thing to pay attention to. So um, we're both in a, a pandemic and an infodemic. Um, so there's a lot of uh, challenges in managing both. Um, so, but we're really at the middle of the beginning. Now we've had our sort of uh, exponential uh, advancement in cases. Uh, we're seeing it looks like a bit of a leveling off, but still, I mean, it's horrible. We have like 2,000 folks at least dying in the United States every day. We're still at the top of that peak and hopefully it's going to come down. But I think before we're done, we're going to have well over 100,000 Americans um, die from this uh, disease. And we're still learning a lot. It's a novel coronavirus. There's still a lot we don't know. It's arguably, you know, older folks don't do as well, but we're learning that even healthy young folks can get the disease and have uh, deaths or serious complications. Strokes seem to be common in younger folks who are coming in healthy. So we're still learning a lot. We still don't yet know whether folks are immunologically protected. Like, you know, if you get a vaccine or you have a disease, whether your antibodies are gonna protect you from another case. Um, and there's a, a lot of debate about how we reopen society and the economy in a safe way, which won't give us a, another boost later, which might be more damaging to the economy and, and, and lives and, and uh, suffering. So it's a complex situation. Um, every, everybody, of course, is aware of it. It's certainly having major economic impacts uh, for investors, but also potentials, as we can talk about, to what to invest in now and next, and how the world is going to look quite different post-COVID, and when do we get to post-COVID? Well, when, is it only when we have a vaccine? Is it only when we all get immunologic passports to show who's had it or not? Lots of questions uh, remain, um, but it's an important time to kind of keep our head level and, and leverage all of us to be responding to this uh, challenge in, in, in new powerful ways. I was, gonna, I was just gonna say, I mean, you know, um, you brought up the idea of, you know, well, what is it gonna take then to really reopen the economy on a more massive scale? And, you know, all the pundits and everything that you're seeing is that, well, we need to make sure that testing is more mass available so that there, you know, anybody uh, who's worried about going somewhere or anything like that, there's just, uh, there's always going to be a test available and then you can know right away and then you go in quarantine. I mean, is that, and of course a vaccine, you know, so, I mean, are those really the two main 
obviously very complex, you know, blocks to seeing everything opening up on a much more massive scale or just, you know, state or countrywide scale. Sure. I mean, we kind of have to go back to our epidemiology, public health 101, which is uh, what we used to do to keep diseases at the epidemic before we were at a pandemic stage, which is contact tracing, which is a bit of a loaded term. But the idea that you can tell who's positive and then hopefully track them and their contacts who they may have been in touch with and isolate them so that the disease doesn't spread. There's something called the R0. Um, if it's uh, a two, it means every individual is infecting two more and then they infect two more and it becomes exponential. If you double that every 30 days, you'd be from one infected person to 30 to a billion if in 30 uh, doublings. Um, uh, so testing is key. If you can identify folks in some who are asymptomatic even, or who may have had the disease and now show antibodies and hopefully are protected from getting it again, we can then understand who's safe to get back into the sort of workspace and public space, but then identify anybody early with symptoms so it cannot um, spread like wildfire. Um, and right now we have a dearth of tests in most parts of the United States and often the turnaround for those has been long. Now we're seeing many labs, many new ways of potentially not just testing for the virus, which is usually requires something called PCR, where you have to cycle and expand the, the amount of RNA, uh, but also now the immunologic testing. So that's key to getting back. Um, it will, I think, potentially, even though there's privacy concerns, we're gonna start seeing the ability to do what's called contact tracing on your phone uh, to identify when you opt in that um, you've been um, um, uh, positive or negative and who you've been near, nearby using Bluetooth. And Google and Apple are now cooperating to build a bit of the protocol that will embed in our operating systems so that we can do that in easy, uh, easy, to, easy to do ways. And that you'll know when you were, if I was near Robert and he was positive, even if he didn't know and he tested positive two days later, I might get a ping saying, hey, you've been exposed, um, maybe go get tested yourself or self-isolate um, until you might show symptoms. Then we'll hopefully also learn that there might be treatments that might be useful. Just like with the common flu, many folks can take Tamiflu early in the course of the disease that can slow it down and maybe give you a much less um, dangerous or uh, shorter disease. We're hopefully going to find drugs that act at different stages of the disease and then hopefully get to a vaccine. There are, I think, three or four vaccine trials that have already started in the United States. It's kind of like being pregnant. You can't speed it up with, you know, nine women can't have a baby in one month. We still need to do a lot of safety and efficacy testing. There have been examples in the past, past of vaccines that seem to be effective, but then can actually make, make the disease worse, particularly when there were different strains that were slightly different. So lots of action, lots of science, uh, lots of collaboration going on, uh, but it's still going to be a work in progress. And I, I'm afraid we're going to see folks returning in ways that are going to see bumps up of, of spikes of the disease in certain parts of the country, which aren't sticking to quarantine. Yeah, I was just, I mean, I was just going to say, you know, um, you know, what, what would you say to some of those folks out there? I hope nobody who's listening on my, on this podcast is, uh, you know, out there protesting to get back. I mean, you know, we, we want to continue to listen to all the guidelines that all of our states are saying and, and the federal government, but, you know, to those who may are maybe out there protesting, wanting to get back to work and look, I, I still empathize with these people because I, I think, uh, you know, look, people want to get back to work. You want to get back to normal life. We all get it, you know, but what would you say to these people? I mean, is it still, it's just still too it's, soon. It's a huge challenge. I mean, there, there's going to be lots of downstream negative sequelae, mental health challenges, um, everything from suicide to, uh, to many other implications of this downstream. And there's a need to get back uh, to work and the economy moving. But if we do that too soon 
and we end up with a million, two million Americans dying, uh, that will shut down the economy even worse and have more, more negative implications. So there's this balance, I think, between uh, how we slowly emerge back when we have appropriate and available testing, um, hopefully uh, emerging drugs and vaccines uh, to, to balance this all off. I would say to the folks who are pushing to go back, like in Georgia, to bowling and tattoo parlors, you know, um, we're going to unfortunately see that those decisions, often made for political reasons, are going to lead to more uh, deaths and arguably more damage to the economy than if we waited a bit, a bit longer. So it's a really challenging balance. No, I mean, uh, but but I wanted to get back to another point that you brought up, and um, and it comes to what you're really all about is this intersection of healthcare and technology, and we're kind of seeing in different parts of the world, like in Singapore, and and I know in Israel, where this contact tracing has been very effective and 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 really has helped um, in trying and starting to reopen some of their economies. But you know, when we talk about doing that stuff in the United States, I mean you know, everyone will start quoting uh, the Bill of Rights uh, immediately because there's a fear of, you know, data collection or security risk or privacy risk. So, you know, uh, how in which, how can we bridge this gap so that at least in the interim, we're saying, hey, look, this technology can help in the interim and uh, we're going to protect you from all these things that you potentially fear when it comes to technology. You know, how, how do you address that? Well, I think most people know that we're already being tracked. I mean, you're, you're logged on Zoom or you're on a website and the, the cookies are tracking you and, and know more about you than sometimes uh, your spouse. Um, uh, we're already being tracked when we drive. My favorite example actually is things like Google Maps and Waze. When you're driving, uh, and it's only been, what, 12 or 13 years since we used to drive with paper maps, now you're sort of sharing your speed and location. That builds a map of traffic around you. That enables you to get to where you're going. You live in LA when you used to drive. I'm sure you use both of those applications frequently to get where you wanted to. And that was crowdsourced information. Um, it was still shared relatively anonymously, but Google can still tell where you've been. Similarly with things like COVID, I think if we all think of ourselves as data donors, we can also get data back, build a map of what, what's happening around you with COVID. Is there a hotspot? Where do I go to get tested? Uh, is that hospital full or not? All those things can be shared in positive ways, being, being mindful of, of security and privacy. Um, and I, hopefully when these are opt-in, we'll all choose to opt-in because we're gonna get something back. Um, so I think there's a, there's a balance here um, between privacy and public health. Um, and, uh, and I think we're gonna see that being challenged in many cases, but it's gonna be very important to use some of these new digital and big data tools to identify hotspots, to sort of put out the small fire before they become big ones. Because it's sort of like, you know, peeing in a, in a swimming pool. We live in the United States. You know, if something's happening differently in Georgia, the neighboring states, even if they're still on lockdown, are gonna be impacted, affected, and infected uh, based on the decisions um, across the swimming pool. So then my next question then has, goes back to your traditional training as physician. You know, um, we keep hearing on the news all the time about how uh, once we get into the warmer months, you're going to start to see uh, just a natural decline of the virus. I mean, debunk this myth for us. Is this true? Give us some truth. Or Yeah, I don't have all the data, but we know that places that are sick. If you've ever been to Singapore, that's a pretty hot and humid place year round. And it hasn't stopped it there. Uh, we're seeing cases in Africa and Sudan. And I don't think you can just as our president, like, oh, it's just going to ma magically go away when the weather gets warmer. We can look back to what happened in 2018 
the cities that didn't have their uh, St. Patrick's Day parade uh, had much less deaths than those uh, who did. And also the states that relaxed or the localities that relaxed their uh, flu uh, reaction had much higher deaths. So uh, we can't just wait for the weather to turn. Um, we need to think smartly about public health, tracking, early response. We need to expand our public health service probably going forward um, so that we can all be, like many of us are trained as EMTs, you don't have to be a full doctor to do basic medical care or CPR, that we all get some public health skills and can be early eyes and ears and response engines going forward. Because the, this, in a sense, uh, my friend Larry Brilliant is a famous epidemiologist who helped cure smallpox, almost calls this a practice pandemic. You know, It doesn't kill 50% of the patients who get it like Ebola. Um, it's not as transmissible as SARS and other diseases. So um, in a sense, this may give us uh, a practice for when we do have a much more dangerous uh, disease emerge and we can squash it early and uh, make a big difference. Uh, so temperature is probably not the holy grail to, to solving this issue. And in 1918, it came back around the world in 1919 and killed almost as many people. I think um, 5 million Americans died and 15 million around the planet. So this is not a short-term challenge. Got it. All right. So then from a clinical perspective, for, for those who may not know what the process is to getting a vaccine approved, and normally the process, from what I understand, it takes many, many years. But, you know, in this crisis situation that we're at, I mean, what are we looking at in terms of how long it will take roughly? And then the process for getting that vaccine to market? Yeah, there are a few basic ways of making a vaccine just to, to remind people of their sort of immunology vaccine 101. The usual idea is that you have a, a bacteria or a virus and you want to challenge your body to recognize that and respond if you do get it to protect you from having the full-on disease. So the classic thing would be to have some of the protein from, in this case, the spike proteins of the coronavirus, which is an RNA virus, which seems to be immunologic, and to um, potentially inject just the spike proteins that have been manufactured in some, some way or genetically manufactured so that it'll trick your body into making antibodies to protect you from getting it. That's one approach. Uh, and there are trials like that underway in China and elsewhere. There's the approach where you can now genetically, this happened you know, within a month or a few days of it being sequenced in China, that sequence was sent to a company uh, by a fellow friend of mine, he's an Aspen fellow in my cohort named Joseph Kim, who's the CEO of Inovio. They took that sequence of the antigen, the, the spike protein area, they then could turn that into uh, DNA that would make the protein for that, insert it into a DNA plasma. They now have a DNA vaccine that's in a clinical trial. So you don't take the protein or a shot, you basically get uh, an electroporation of the, the DNA into your skin cells, which then starts to have your own cells make the protein that looks like that antigen that's in trials. You have another group, um, both of these are public companies uh, called Moderna out of Boston, which is pioneering mRNA, where you inject the RNA that codes for that uh, antigen directly into the body, and that's in trials as well. So the challenge is these trials can start, but it still might take months and years to see whether that the, the patients, or in this case, the test subjects are responding immunologically, whether even if they do respond immunologically, are they then protected from infection? Is that vaccine safe? Is it not going to trigger some autoimmune process? Or if you get a slightly different strain of a different coronavirus, is that not going to give you a, a, a more robust response that's going to cause inflammation and, and organ damage and, and acute sickness? So it takes a while to get the safety profiles worked out and then to build whatever vaccine method is at scale so that millions of folks can get it. So um, hard to speed some of those processes up. And of course, we've been at 
trying to develop an HIV vaccine and a vaccine for the common cold for, for decades and have not had success in, in some of those areas, which had a lot of time and money thrown at them. But I'm quite confident we'll have some sort of vaccine within the year, but to have that in everyone's uh, pocket or available in the clinic uh, to, to scale will we'll still take some time after that. Got it. All right. So, you know, you're on a, an investing podcast and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, what our audience should look for and look out for when it comes to a potential new investment, especially with companies, uh, well, in healthcare investments, especially with these companies that have mentioned that they have some sort of association or affiliation with doing something uh, related to COVID. So, you know, in your opinion, what are some of the things that investors should look for and look out for uh, going forward? Well, I mean, there's that old Chinese proverb that uh, crisis, uh, which this is, creates opportunity. And I think uh, you can start thinking about what's the you know, early and later post-COVID world going to look like. Obviously, we're, we're talking on Zoom. And if you invested in Zoom early on, you're pretty happy. Um, you know, what are the industries that are going to benefit from uh, our more virtual age? And one of those is certainly telemedicine. Um, you know, a lot of calls can now be done virtually on Skype or, or FaceTime because HIPAA, the, 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 the rules for health information portability have been somewhat relaxed. You don't need to be on a HIPAA compliant platform. And now also reimbursements from Medicare and Medicaid, et cetera, are now paying for virtual visits uh, in many cases. So we're seeing the rapid rise in, in telemedicine. So that would be a smart investment. I'm not sure if it, it's already out of the barn, uh, but we're gonna see more and more ways that when you can do more remote care, it may be from you know having a, you know, companies that make, you know, diagnostic patches that you can wear that can stream your vital signs or folks that are doing, you know, breathometers that can track your breath for signs of uh, infection or uh, sort of the idea of a medical tricorder, which I have here somewhere, uh, you know, ways that we're going to now going to connect our health data from our Fitbits and Apple Watches and our connected homes, not just the data, but making sense of that. So companies that are doing AI machine learning on your vital signs or on your omics. We're going to learn... Um, who's more likely to get infected by COVID, not just infected, but have a, uh, a dangerous course, maybe based on your genomics. Robert, you and I were joking before, are we really related? We could do our 23andMe, but now you can get your full genome sequence for less than $500, and we're gonna learn from that big data who's, who's more at risk based on our underlying blood type or other genes. Um, so I think there's investments in the omics space. It could be your digitome, your sociome, your microbiome, all those. Uh, companies are getting faster and cheaper, and we're starting to make sense of that data moving forward. Another area is, uh, in terms of virtualized care, is artificial intelligence, or I like to call it IA, intelligence augmentation, which is already emerging into healthcare, playing a role in reading x-rays and pathology slides and doing you know simple dermatology. You can all download an app now, several of them, um, where you could do your basic dermatology screening at home. Or if you're a radiologist, you don't need to read every x-ray. They're being read initially by a machine learning algorithm, some of which can now identify COVID patients early or pocket ultrasounds embedded with AI. So anything that's going to start to connect better, smarter, data-driven healthcare, I think, is a smart area to get into um, as, as one element. And also uh, uh, companies that are going to thrive in a more virtualized age. Uh, my Oculus Rift is somewhere over here. Uh, VR and AR and mixed reality can be used for education for medical training, for medical therapy. I did this morning my very first VR workout on this thing called Superhuman. A pretty amazing workout, got my heart rate up, connected to my Apple Watch. Those are sort of um, 
blending areas, I think are even impactful. And companies like Peloton or uh, where you have a mirror where you do the workouts, those are examples of things where we can virtualize more, more uh, of our health and, and, and um, wellness. Um, and even when we get back to a hopefully normal world where we're hugging people and shaking hands, people are going to get used to doing more virtualized visits like this one and virtualized um, meetings and virtualized healthcare. That is going to mean we're not going to go back to where we were in early 2000. I was just going to say, because we're, you know, we're nearing the end here, you know, for, for our interview, but you know, what, what would you say is your, your, your final take or, or something that you'd love my audience to hear, you know, uh, whether it be a message of hope or, a, a message of reality uh, that that people can maybe take away with, so that uh, you know, when whether it's tomorrow things open up more, or months from now, you know, what 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 are some things that? Uh, <laughs> uh, my my, my four year old he wants to say hi. So the oh. future is. Uh, I was gonna say, let's meet some more crafts. Oh, this is this is younger. This is the younger craft spacecraft. He's wearing a his, his astronaut helmet. Ah, uh, there we go. Uh, so well. well uh, this is the next generation. They're, they're going to inherit the earth. Uh, I would say, um, and you've got a youngster at home, six months, six week old. So three months, uh, yep. three months. So uh, they grow fast. Um, I, I would say uh, it's a time for actually opportunity. This horrible things are happening. We're sort of in self um, uh, input. We're in both in not voluntary, but involuntary quarantine. It gives us an opportunity for all of us to think, how do we reimagine our own personal lives, our business opportunities, our investment thesis? Um, how do we take this time to, you know, connect differently with family and friends and colleagues? Um, you know, it, it was exactly 50 years ago last week that the Apollo 13 uh, uh, mission happened. It was almost a disaster. And uh, the head of mission control, Gene Kranz, was heard, uh, you know, this could be a disaster for, for, for NASA. And he actually said, uh, frankly, I think this will be uh, NASA's finest hour, which is actually what happened. They, you know, it's a, you've mostly seen the movie. The actual history is even more amazing. How were they able to take disaster and come together and really make it, you know, NASA's finest hour? And I think the the the, the silver lining of this COVID crisis is that we have a lot of new energy and collaboration and science coming together, which will hopefully make this humanity's finest hour. Uh, and also bring us to a future where by acting as, as one, you know, as a team, we can address not just this challenge, but maybe the, uh, I'd argue, most a bigger, bigger challenge, um, the global warming and the future of the environment, which will have even broader potential negative impacts on economies and health if, as the sea levels rise. So I think the opportunity is to make this our finest hour, to think about new ways of collaborating, to think about the opportunity space, the ways that we can make the world better, catalyzed by, the, by this. Uh, to, to realize that, you know, it's, it's a tragedy for many of our friends and family and loved ones. Some are passing away, some are have, have been sick, some have morbidity, um, many economics challenges, but how can we build a better, more equitable, equitable world as well? This disease especially is raising up the specter of the um, health inequities that we have in the United States, uh, whether it's access to healthcare, food, education, um, how can we use this as an opportunity to learn and build a, a better healthcare system, better public health and better governance and, and policies moving forward as well. So opportunity uh, as well as strategy can hopefully bring us to a, a brighter future. Let's hope so. And with that, Dr. Kraft, where can my audience go and find more information about you, Singularity University, and Exponential Medicine? Um, you can find me at danielcraftmd.net. Lots of talks from TED Talks and beyond on there. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Daniel underscore craft and try and share what's happening in, um, in healthcare and technology, including on the investment side. If you're looking for new investments, I have a new company called digital.health. The website is digital.health where we're trying to combine what are the latest in digital health and connected technologies that your clinicians can start to prescribe. I think that's a big, this whole digital health world we didn't really talk about, but it's connected to virtualized care that's gonna be exploding over the next uh, few years. You know, what you can do with your wearables and data and use that to be much more proactive about your own health and um, managing and diagnosing early and therapy. That's under digital.health. Um, and you can check out exponentialmedicine.com. Uh, that's the conference I run every year where you can watch plenty of videos from some amazing faculty who are looking at the future uh, and already creating that, whether it's in you know, uh, brain computer interfaces or uh, drones for dribbling drugs or uh, psilocybin for uh, rebooting your brain and end of life care. A lot of innovations happening across the spectrum. And as investors out there, you guys can be catalyzing the future of healthcare by, by um, helping fund it as well as starting to try the technologies that exist today. The future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Use your connected scale and blood pressure cuff and Fitbit, share that with your clinician, use that to monitor uh, if you might have COVID or another illness to be smarter about leveraging the data, being more empowered yourself to um, be creating that future of healthcare uh, for everybody. Perfect. So. And with that, before I let you go, I just need some disclosures. Um, you mentioned a few companies, so just need to know whether you are a shareholder or not. Um, Apple, Fitbit, Zoom, Inovio, Moderna, Google, and Peloton. Not involved, unfortunately, formally in any of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. Well, with that, Dr. Kraft, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, I really do appreciate it. And uh, we're going to get that 23andMe done very soon. We'll figure it out. Stay safe, everybody out there, and uh, go create the future. Thank you. Stay safe.